Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Toby Milden. Toby is a diversity and inclusion consultant in the UK. And currently, he serves as diversity and inclusion lead for BBC Online, Corporate and Radio. He is also a qualified executive uh, coach and an NLP practitioner with neuroscience and He worked with a number of um, big and well-known companies um, to give them management advice on um, working around inclusion and diversity. And we will speak about later where you can reach um, Toby on his Twitter, but I wanted to already tell listeners that you have a great um, blog on Medium and also a great SoundCloud channel that we will all list for the listeners to see. Uh, where you share really great advice about mindfulness, about career advice, about communication advice. So really, really a wealth of, of information. So thank you very much, Toby, to, to be here with us today. And maybe before we start talking about your work and some of the good and bad practices of, of diversity and inclusion, um, may I ask you also to introduce yourself to listeners, explain a little bit about yourself and your passion, what drives you, your work. Well, you did a really good introduction. Thank you for that. Um, So I'm currently serving as the Diversity and Inclusion Manager at the BBC, and I specialise in technology. So that's all of our audience-facing products, uh, like video on demand, the news website, and uh, smartphone apps as well as all of our corporate functions like marketing, finance, legal. And really, my mission is to ensure that the BBC's workforce reflects the diversity of the uh, UK that we serve. Great. Now, um, so your your role is to ensure that, um, that managers and leadership are aware about the fact that any decent company nowadays has to really reflect, you know, uh, the society and the diversity in society, and then to help them to take real practical actions 
to make it possible really to attract and retain um, talent and employees from a very diverse group. Now, maybe to tell listeners who are not so familiar with some of these concepts, so uh, did you have to um, work also on convincing leadership or is there um, a necessity, do you think, in some companies to still convince leadership about the importance of diversity in the workforce and diversity initiatives? Yeah, um, some organizations um, like the BBC in intuitively uh, get why diversity and inclusion is important uh, for the organization. Um, there are organizations out there that don't fully understand the, the business case for diversity and inclusion and those organizations need to come up to, to speed on, on the benefits of, of having an inclusive culture and a, and a diverse workforce. Now, I think it's quite, art, it feels a bit artificial and weird for the two of us to be speaking about the why, because we, of course, both really believe and are convinced that this is an absolute necessity. But, but if you would need to make the business case um, what would be perhaps some of the arguments that, that you would be using to say, you know, why you need to invest in these initiatives to make your workforce more reflective of society as a whole? Well, there's, there's kind of two approaches to this. Um, there's lots of documented evidence out there now, um, you know, studies done by prestigious organizations like Harvard, for example, where they talk about the benefits of diversity and they often talk about things like uh, productivity, um, greater creativity, um, problem solving, reaching uh, and engaging with new markets, etc. Um, the, the second thing really is when I talk to business managers is to understand what is important to them and their business unit because diversity and inclusion actually covers every corner of an organization and there will be something that it directly impacts upon within a business. So for the BBC, it's really important for us that we are the most creative organization in the world. And we can only be the most creative organization in the world if we have a diversity of thoughts and diversity of opinion and diversity of background sat around the table creating ideas for us yeah i think this is this is really great what you just said and and because on the one hand i think perhaps quite a lot of managers or organization would think of um, diversity inclusion initiatives as maybe something of a csr you know we we, we have talked about this in our pre-podcast conversation about tokenism but then and, and that's when yeah they maybe would get it on the surface because oh, we may have to report about it or it, how uh, our company will be perceived. And then there's this deeper engagement with this issue, like you said, at the BBC, where they absolutely know that to have new ideas, in innovation, creativity, as you say, and sensitivity to, to new markets, to a broad range of customers and clients, this diversity has to be reflected around in teams and around tables where decisions are made or where they brainstorm. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. 
you have worked with a number of organizations and also you're working now at the, at the BBC more specifically. So um, what kind of initiatives um, are there? What, what kind of a, a menu uh, organizations could be picking from, you know, to take to take this to the next level. I know that um, uh, you explained to me that you, you work, for example, within the IT team around gender diversity and attracting more women um, who are in engineering or programming and also other aspects. So if you could take us maybe through just a couple of the concrete projects or initiatives that you're working with, that would be, I think, quite illustrative. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much that can be done within the diversity and inclusion field within an organization. Um, I like to think of it in very discrete boxes of, um, you know, a talent pipeline in terms of how do you attract and select uh, people for your business? How do you then recruit them on board them? Then how do you um, retain them and develop them um, through to uh, when they do leave the organization? You know, how do they how do they leave um, that that's in terms of the employee life cycle you know there's other areas looking at diversity of suppliers for example so um, you know how many of the uh, suppliers do you work with um, you know how many of those are run or owned by say women or ethnic minorities or people with disabilities um, so I suppose there's so much that can be done. And the first thing that I would encourage any organization to do is kind of set, step back and ask themselves, you know, where in the entire process could there be inequality um, and then tackle that first. So it could be, for example, that through analyzing um, data and information that you see that there's bias happening in shortlisting of job applicants so an organization first of all may want to look at um, how uh, how to eliminate some of that bias in within the recruitment process it might be that an organization doesn't do much recruiting and therefore recruiting uh, new people uh, wouldn't diversify your workforce so you might want to look at ways in which you can grow and develop people within your business. And what, and what would be an example of, of this if, as you said, if, um, if an organization is maybe not recruiting, as you say, um, but still they maybe think about, okay, now we need to, we need to be a much more diverse, um, and more inclusive workforce. Would they, um, take on somebody on a contracting basis or would they then look at to their supply chain or what are other ways then? Well, I think with them, um, if an organization isn't doing much recruiting, then I would say it, it's a good, this is a good opportunity to look at the inclusive culture of your organization and whether there are particular groups of people that don't seem to be able to move up through the organization like others. You know, an example could be that, you know, when you look at your organization, that there are there are many more men working at the top of the organization in senior leadership positions than women, for example. That's just one area. 
So, you know, you need to ask yourself, you know, what is happening in the organization that is holding women back? Once you know the answer to that question, you could then start to design some interventions. And that could be mentoring. Uh, it could be sp uh, like a sponsorship scheme. It could be additional training. Uh, any, any number of things to help try and make things a lot fairer and equal. No, that's a really great point. Um, kind of an audit, right? Like a diversity audit of, of the structures and... Yeah, it, it does help to do an audit um, and it, it, it helps to be able to measure things. I suppose my, my kind of word of caution is that within diversity, it's very easy to fall into the trap of, you know, measuring people by physical um, attributes like their ethnicity or their gender or disability. And what's healthy for an organisation is to, is, to, is to understand that baseline but to then understand that diversity is a lot more richer um, than that. So people can be diverse in, in, uh, in many different ways. Um, and it could be how they were educated, it could be the type of family that they grew up in, it could be that they traveled a lot when they were a child and that, that, that shaped their view on the world. Um, any number of ways make us diverse. Um, the other thing is to then have a conversation in the organization around inclusion because i think that's much more important because diversity already exists you know the uk for example is a very diverse nation but an organization has to have an inclusive culture where everybody can come to work everybody can be their best and everyone can um, perform at the, the best that they can be Absolutely, and and when you were um, speaking before, I was I was thinking exactly the same thing that you just brought up that that when you you know look and analyze your organization, um, as you said, it's it's there are visual or visible um, differences, so to speak. That that you know, okay, we can see how many men and women, and and we can also see skin color. We can see perhaps some uh, of the disabilities, but then. It's really about um, acceptance and openness and maybe transparency that people can um, be themselves at work. Um, and this goes to sexual orientation. It goes to religious beliefs. It's that, that basically who you are is okay for that organization. Yeah. And so how, how does it then... I, I, I guess... Um, for any organization that would like to embark on this, you need really good kind of navigation for the managers that it, it doesn't turn into um, some kind of investigation into people's lives to make sure that, okay, do you maybe have some mental health problems, that, or, you know, and or that it doesn't turn into positive discrimination? Yeah. Um, I, I would argue that one of the good ways of doing it is, is, is being very conscious of, difference within the workplace and and almost preempting that difference as well so you know, we we know that it, it's fair to say that within any uh workforce that you know a proportion of people working in a company will live with a mental health condition now you could then and say, well, you know, that's inevitable. So what can we do as an organization to make sure that we accommodate people 
living with mental health conditions, for example, where they can feel supported and come to work and feel that they can still be welcomed and and you know and work within the organisation um, as best as they can. That's one way. You know, another one is that you know it's also inevitable that you're going to have parents in an organisation. So what are the things that an organisation can do to be accommodating and flexible and supportive of parents? So there's a whole number of, of things that an organisation can can anticipate and preempt and prepare for. And when it comes to then creating this kind of vibrant, open, inclusive workplaces, it, it is not just the job of the manager or just the job of HR or just if there is a dedicated diversity manager. It's not just uh, his or her job, right? There, there needs to be, it needs to be across the board, this responsibility. Yeah, there's kind of two parts to this, really. It, I, I, I firmly believe that it has to be it, it definitely has to be led from the top of an organization the the very top of an organization has to demonstrate and lead by example um inclusive ways of working and leadership but also diversity and inclusion is everyone's responsibility and when i do public speaking i often liken this to health and safety that in an organization, everybody has a responsibility for health and safety. If you see a hazard, you will report it or, or try and you know, reduce the hazard yourself. Um, and I believe that the same needs to happen with diversity and inclusion, that when you see in an organization um, in inequality or unfairness or somebody not being in included fully that everyone has a duty to to try and resolve that situation and then that goes back to what we were saying right that that if the organization is is structured around fear and command and control this may not take place if people would be afraid to speak up or right yeah yeah i mean i i if, if there's an organisation that has a, a culture of, you know, fear, then I I don't think that they could be particularly inclusive either, um, mm. because part of being inclusive is allowing people to be able to speak up um, and and to you know to share their differences in the workplace. May I ask you to um, maybe illustrate some really good practice, something that you saw in in an organization or something that you implemented in the BBC that, you know, was particularly nice and successful. And then maybe if it also comes to mind an example where perhaps an initiative was led with the best intention in mind, but then it kind of backfired or didn't turn out particularly well. Yeah, I think some, some, of, the, some of the best examples are where diversity and inclusion becomes business as usual um, and they don't become a special project that's run by HR for example um, and we've been doing lots of that so for example we've been piloting uh, a new way of shortlisting candidates um, where it's a piece of software where candidates respond to a challenge anonymously online and the challenge enables them to be able to demonstrate they have the key skill 
for that particular job. But it also means that it's done, because it's done anonymously, that they know and, and we're not able to judge them uh, based on any, any characteristic. We're purely selecting them for an interview based on merit. And we've been quite yeah. lucky because mm. we've been able to incorporate that into the normal way that we've done recruitment. So it became, it became very business as usual and, and, very, and very seamless for our recruiters and hiring managers involved. So I'd say that, that's a, an example of good practice. It, it goes back a little bit to, I have read, you know, uh, about some companies who started doing the anonymous CVs where they don't, you know, they, they hide the name, not to give away any kind of information, but perhaps this goes even further than that. It really just purely skills based and, and accepting everybody based on their skills and not, you know, where they went to school, because all of these also still figure on your CV and can maybe trigger some unconscious bias. Yeah, and, and this, I mean, this way of shortlisting candidates goes goes well beyond anonymized CVs. Um, you know, some psychologists are raising concerns about anonymized CVs because what they're finding is that you blank out people's names or where they went to university, but hiring managers can still read between the lines and mm. and and that still can trigger unconscious bias but also if you know if candidates use trigger words so they, they may for example have a position as chairwoman um it, now the software doesn't necessarily um blank out that job title but um you know, the fact that it says chairwoman would suggest that I'm a woman, for example, and that can trigger some unconscious bias. This other method, I think, is much better in that it, it allows people to to demonstrate that they have the core skill. And what we found is that we are seeing an increase of applicants from non-traditional backgrounds. So typically, our, you know, our job descriptions used to say that you had to have a computer science degree, for example, to be a software engineer. And what we've realized that actually you don't have to have a computer science degree. You could be a self-taught software engineer um, and, and still do a really good job for us. Yeah, that's great because you'd really enlarge the, the, the recruitment funnel because that's, that's maybe already some, some of the hurdles where, where it all goes very, very narrow. Um, in terms of the recruitment, I, any uh, example come to mind that is wasn't that good, or you prefer not to not to share one? I think we're really lucky at the BBC in that the initiatives that we that we've run have been very successful. Um, I would say that some of the poor examples that I've seen out, you know, out in the market are those that are very tokenistic. Um, and almost bordering on, you know, positive discrimination, which, um, you know, is is not allowed um, in the UK. So, um, you know, those are some of the, the, the poor examples, I would say, because, you know, nobody, I, I don't think many people want to be selected for a job because of a particular characteristic. You know, I'm, I've got a physical disability myself. And I, I wouldn't like to be selected for a job because I was disabled. I want to be selected for a job because I'm the best person for the job. Um, now, 
you know, I think this is one of the one of the, the things that you have to be very conscious of in diversity and inclusion, and is that the best person for the job may be a white, straight, middle-aged man, for example. Now, you know that you know diversity includes everyone, and so we have to be really careful that we don't alienate anybody when we talk about diversity, because everyone should be included. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm just when, when you're speaking, I was reminded that, you know, I'm Hungarian and coming from Eastern Europe, um, which is, of course, much less diverse, even in the population, um, and still quite um, uh, a macho society. And, and one um, blog, one feminist blog, picked up on and really started circulating a job ad which was for an attractive receptionist. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and you know, and I think it goes back to that wave of campaigning around high heels and and I think that we perhaps don't even realize how many how many stereotypes there are kind of circulating in, in, in the in the collective narrative around jobs and, and how um, a certain job should be performed by a certain type of person we imagine. Um, so I think it's great that, you know, the BBC and other companies are really taking this as kind of very, very seriously and, and are finding great ways to to show other companies leading examples about how it should be done properly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, the BBC um, takes this seriously and, you know, invests a lot lot of time in, in in really improving its diversity and inclusion and because we're a public service broadcaster you know we also share that with the industry so um you know we work with other organizations as well and and share what we what we learn and what works well and what doesn't work well and what you need to try differently so there's a kind of a snowballing effect yeah yeah and I think it's really important mm. that, you know, within diversity inclusion, everybody gets together and, and, you know, shares what works well and, you know, and, and celebrates their successes. Now, before we go to the last question, um, may I ask you, Toby, to share with listeners where they can read your blog, um, find you on Twitter? What's the best way to, you know, if people would like to learn more about your work and, and maybe to get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter. So my handle is at Toby Milden. Uh, I'm also available on LinkedIn. Um, and you can just Google me, actually. And, and on the first page of Google, you know, access my blog and things like that. Absolutely. You have a, you have a very the big digital footprint. And again, if, if uh, I just read a couple of your blog articles about, uh, one was about the... Um, the negative thoughts that are in our heads <laughs> and I found that you know particularly helpful on that particular day so absolutely I encourage listeners to go and read your, <laughs> read your blog. The last question is always the same on the Work Life podcast. If I could ask you Toby to give one advice to a CEO for them to take a look and improve diversity and make their workplace more inclusive, what would be kind of your main advice? This is actually quite an easy question because I think my, my main advice would be um, to take personal responsibility for diversity and inclusion within your business. So this isn't, you know, this isn't something that you should delegate. Um, 
you know, by obviously by all means get, you know, get people to assist you um, within their respective business functions, like your HR director or your marketing or procurement people. But, you know, take personal responsibility for it and identify one inclusive behavior that you can personally demonstrate and lead by example within your organization. Great. I think that's a really, really important and, and great piece of advice. So thank you very much, Toby. I really, really appreciated uh, your time and that you came on the podcast. Um, and I wish yep. you really best of success in your work and, and in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.